Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Won't you stand to your feet? Isn't it great to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Let's raise our voices together and sing to him. Shout to the Lord, all the earth, for he is worthy of our praise this morning. Let's sing together. My Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like you. All of my days, I want to praise the wonders of your mighty love. My comfort, my shelter, tower.
Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, church. You know, part of the goodness of God is that he gives us the gift of music that we can express to him all the praise and all the glory that's due his name. So glad that we have a reason to sing today, right? Amen. Well, we are certainly glad that you are here to worship with us this morning. And I just wanted to call special attention to any visitors that we might have. If you are here this morning, we would invite you to take a care card that's placed in the pew back in front of you. And honest, it's the place to put your name and some information about you. And you turn that in either to one of the staff or in the giving boxes that are in the foyer of our sanctuary here so that we can just have recollection of your visit. We would love to know that you've been with us today. Uh, so uh, welcome. Uh, and then for anyone on the back side of this care card, it's a place for uh, anyone to fill out a prayer request, prayer need that you might have. And of course, your staff would like to know about that as well so that we could be praying for you. But welcome to our worship services today. A couple other announcements that I want to make you aware of. First is our Women of Faith ministry, which reaches out to our senior adult ladies who are either single, widowed, or divorced. Uh, we'll meet for a time of fellowship this Tuesday, March 7th at 1130 at Captain Steve. So if that's you and desire to be a part of that, um, be at Captain Steve's at 1130 on this Tuesday for a time of fellowship together. Friendly neighbors, don't forget uh, your meeting coming up on March the 14th at 1130. That'll be here before you know it. And then, ladies, you have a very special event this week that I'm sure that you will want to attend. It's at 630 in the core. Uh, the theme is entitled Complete Joy in His Presence. Um, tickets are uh, $10, and they uh, are on sale, and today's the last day to get that ticket, though, so make sure that you run by the welcome desk today and get your ticket for this Thursday's event. Our Grief Share Ministry begins this Tuesday, March 7th as well, 6.30 to 8.30. For more information on our Grief Share Ministry, please contact Linda Bounds. Uh, our Golf for Missions tournament is coming up on April the 1st. Um, this tournament allows uh, uh, funds to come into our youth ministry to help fund our mission trips. This year, uh, thankfully, after a long time of not being able to go, we're going to be able to go back to Malawi, Africa. And so our team has been um, assembled for over a half a year. We've been working really hard at getting things ready to go to Malawi, Africa. And one of the ways that helps fund that trip is the Youth for Missions Golf Tournament. So we hope and pray that you can be involved either by playing or sponsoring a hole. Um, and you can get the registration cards for that uh, at the welcome desk. Um, but it's $60 per person uh, to play golf. And it's $100 to sponsor a hole. And again, all those proceeds go to help fund our mission trip to Malawi, Africa. Registration for those things is due March 26th. So make sure that uh, you put that on your calendar. Uh, the deadline for our TBR family retreat has been extended through today. So if you uh, had intentions of going but missed a deadline, you can still go. Just make sure that you get your $50 deposit in and your reg registration form in by today. So, uh, and then also uh, to help support the total missions effort of our church, um, we have some mission shirts that are on sale. 
And if you would like to purchase one of these mission shirts, um, the pricing guide and all of that uh, is at the welcome desk. And you can see Garrett uh, Inslee for more information on that as well. Listen to what David writes in Psalm 100. He says, shout triumphantly to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness and come before him with joyful songs. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his, his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name for the Lord is good and his love is eternal. His faithfulness endures through all generations. Would you pray with me? Father God, you are indeed worthy of our praise. You are a good God. You're good all the time. Even when there are times that we cannot see it and we're blinded to it, does not change the fact that you are good. Your goodness never leaves you. Your goodness is always with you. And Father, your word promises us too that even in the troubles and trials of life, you're working in and through those for our good and for your glory. So God, we thank you and we praise you for what? For that, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Father, for your never-ending love. We thank you, Father, for your forgiveness that is ours through the cross of the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that you did for us that what we could not do for ourselves. Provide a way of salvation, the way of salvation. For Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes unto the Father except through him. Lord, what a wonderful plan. That even while we were still yet in our sin, enemies of you, you died for us. You gave yourself to us that we might have a relationship with you. God, I pray that today the thoughts that we have while we're singing songs and while we're listening to the message that you have given our pastor but to strengthen our commitment to you, our faith in you, and our belief in you. Father, that we could be better stewards of what you've given us, the gospel, to share to others. Lord, we love you. I pray, Father, that you would help us love you more. But thank you, Father, for first loving us. I pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.
Amen. Why don't you stand to your feet? Isn't it great that we have the hope and the promise of heaven? Amen. Amen. We're going to sing a medley of old heaven songs. So grab on, hang on, and sing with me. Here we go. Yes, we'll gather at the
see him here they see him here and they see him here we know it because he said it jesus said the world will see him when the world sees us that's why together we do this we give so that those who've not yet seen can see it means something when the world sees how we give it means something because we do not look the same it means something because we do not sound the same it means something because when we give, this is what the world sees. They see the gospel doing what the world cannot. They see the gospel making us one. And so we give. We give so that missionaries can go. We give so that churches can be started, hurts can be healed, and truth can be shared. We give so the world might see Jesus in us. United, United as one. Good singing this morning. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 as we continue walking through what is the shortest uh, gospel. Mark chapter 10. And this morning we're looking at the subject matter predictions and desires. Predictions and desires. We'll pick up reading in verse uh, 32. Uh, right after where we left off last week, and Lord willing, we'll go down through verse 45 uh, this morning. Predictions and desires. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, please? Verse 32 says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? 
And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, we pray this morning that as you continue to uh, conform your children to the image of your Son, Lord, that our minds, our thoughts, our passions would be more like that of Christ. Lord, we see today how upside down the world is. How messed up the world is. And God, I pray that your children would be different. I pray that your Holy Spirit would use this message in our lives today. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the year 2006, John Piper wrote a book, 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die. Now, of course, I'm not going to cite all 50 reasons, but I do want to mention several of them. Uh, Jesus came to die, he writes, to absorb the wrath of God against sin. Jesus came to die to show the wealth of God's love for sinners. He came to die to show his own depth of love for sinners. Jesus came to die for the forgiveness of sin. He came to die to enable us to be holy. He came to die to reconcile us to God. He came to die to create for himself a family of redeemed that will be his witnesses. One more I want to mention. He came to die to defeat the power of death and the grave. Jesus came to die for all of those reasons. Folks, I think this morning from this section of scripture that we've just read we could add one more reason to John Piper's. In verse 45, notice what what we're told there. In verse 45 we read, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
In fact, that's probably the key verse in the whole gospel of Mark right there. And as we look at that verse, as we look at verse 45, what we see is the sad contrast in focus and priority between Jesus and his disciples. And it is a reminder to us that as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to have the mind of Christ. I want you to see, first of all, with me this morning, God's heart is revealed. God's heart is revealed. Jesus speaks of his soon coming death on the cross. Read with me again, verse 32 and following. They were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Now, right away, we are introduced to three different sets of people in the crowd. First, of course, there is Jesus walking on up ahead in front of his disciples and in front of everybody as rabbis of that time tended to do. They would walk ahead, their disciples would follow them. And then secondly, we see the disciples. And then thirdly, we see those in the crowd. Some of them are true followers, no doubt, and perhaps some in the crowd are nothing more than curiosity seekers. And we're told that the disciples were amazed. Notice the emotions we're going to see in this text. The disciples are amazed. I take that to mean that they are still reflecting on what Jesus has just taught them about the rich. His encounter with the rich young ruler and how the rich young ruler refused to give up what was an idol in his life to follow Jesus. You remember as I said last week the disciples would have have had the mindset of the typical Jews at this time that if you were wealthy and powerful it's because you were right with God. God's favor was upon you. And Jesus turned that upside down to say no. You know, oftentimes the the wealthy have their eyes on their, their wealth and that keeps their vision off of God. They're not right with God. And, and Jesus said it's so difficult for the rich to be saved because they want to trust in what they possess. And the disciples were amazed and they, they were thinking if somebody like the rich young ruler is not saved, then who in the world can be saved? They're dumbfounded. Because Jesus has taken the value system of the world and he has turned it upside down and stood it on its head. And so I take their amazement to be a carryover from that previous episode. We're told that others were fearful. Why were others fearful? Fearful, another emotion that we see in the text here. Again, it may be because of the way Jesus has just turned their theology upside down. Uh, again, if somebody like the rich young ruler is not saved, then, then can we be made right with God? What hope do we have of being saved? They're fearful of their own 
spiritual status before God, perhaps. So amazement and fear. And notice what Jesus does. He takes the 12 disciples aside to teach them more in depth. Now this is, a, this is a principle in the scripture. To those who have, more will be given. The scripture says if you don't even respond to what you have, then, then what you do have will be taken away. But if you respond to, to the truth God's given you, you're going to be given more. The disciples have been responsible so far, so Jesus is going to share more with them. And as he does so, what he does is tell them what awaits him. Once he gets to Jerusalem, he predicts his suffering and his death to them. Now this is the third time that he has told his disciples what awaits him when he's going to... uh, arrive in Jerusalem and no doubt he is drawing from a couple of Old Testament texts you'll want to write down first of all Psalm 22 and in Psalm 22 uh, the psalmist says all who see me mock me they make mouths at me they wag their heads he trusts in the Lord let let him deliver him Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And then over in verse 16 of Psalm 22, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. And another Old Testament text that Jesus would have been drawing from was over in Isaiah chapter 50. He said, I give my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Those are some of the Old Testament predictions of what would happen to the Messiah. And Jesus is using these texts to describe to his disciples his suffering and death that's going to happen to him once he arrives in Jerusalem. He perfectly knows what's ahead of him. The religious leaders are going to be his accusers. But the Jewish leaders would have to turn Jesus over to the Roman authorities to have him killed. It was Rome who exercised the power to carry out an execution. And so Jesus knew that once they arrive in Jerusalem, there's going to be this balance between Jews and Gentiles who turn against him and ultimately he's going to be put on a cross and crucified. But thankfully that's not the end of the story because in verse 34 he also predicts his resurrection. Amen? That after the third day he's going to be raised from the dead. Now folks I want you to keep in mind that while Jesus was fully human he was also fully divine. He knew these things. He's sovereign God. He even knew that Simon Peter would deny him three times. God knows everything. He's omniscient. 
As somebody wisely said on one occasion, has it ever dawned upon you that there is nothing that has dawned upon him? The amazing thing we see here is that despite knowing all of this, Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Because as the Bible points out, no one's going to take his life from him. He is going to voluntarily lay it down. He told Simon Peter in the garden when Peter took out his sword and and cut off the ear of, of one of the soldiers. Jesus said, Peter, put down your sword. Do you not know that I could call to my father and he would send 12 legions of angels to rescue me? Jesus laid down his own life. Now again, what we have here is a warning of all that is to come once they arrive in Jerusalem. Folks, I want you to realize something this morning. Just a few weeks away from celebrating Easter, Jesus came to die for our sin. In Ephesians 1, the scripture says there in verse 7, We have redemption of our sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because folks the truth of the matter is. You need a savior. And I need a savior. We cannot save ourselves. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I want you to turn with me over to Romans chapter 3 for just a moment. Romans chapter 3. And find verse 20 with me. And we're going to read down through about verse 25. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. Do you know anybody who is trying to work their way to heaven? They're thinking if they do enough good deeds, they might have a chance of getting there. The scripture says it won't happen that way. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, listen to verse 21. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. You you see all of the ways that man thinks he can make himself right with God are wrong. Because man cannot do what is impossible for man to do. Just as surely as the Bible tells you and me that we have sinned against a holy God, it also tells us we can't fix this. We have a desperate problem. 
And every solution we try to come up with on our own is tainted with sin because that's all we know. We're sinners by nature and by choice. And yet the fact remains there will be no sin in God's presence and no sin in heaven. And so if I can't fix my problem and you can't fix your problem, what in the world are we going to do? We've got a deep, deep problem that if left unfixed is going to follow us all. All the way into eternity. Well the Bible says God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He sent his son to be the perfect sin sacrifice. And Jesus Christ voluntarily laid down his life. It's like the entire Old Testament was waiting on that perfect sacrifice. And then we come to the New Testament and the perfect sin sacrifice shows up because God sent him. But the question is, have you come to faith in Christ? Is your sin forgiven? Have you come to Christ in repentance and faith? If you haven't, you're in deep trouble before a holy God. And so without delay, you need to come to Christ. You need a Savior. A second thing I want you to see this morning, man's heart is revealed. James and John look past what Jesus has just said, and they make a bold and a foolish request. Back in our text, if you'll pick up reading with me in verse 35, you'll see this. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. The, the disciples obviously don't understand. They still don't understand. Whatever they make of Jesus' prediction of his death, they think that when they get to Jerusalem, Jesus is going to throw off the Roman bondage and set up his throne. Maybe they believe all this is going to happen within three days. Jesus will die, he'll be buried, he'll be raised, he'll set up his throne. And all of this is going to happen within three or four days. This must be the way they were thinking. And so they're, they're realizing things are about to come to a head. Jesus had told them previously that they were going to sit on thrones and reign with him. James and John want to have the top seats. They're ready to even push Simon Peter aside. After all, blood's thicker than water, as the old saying goes, right? Two brothers ruling alongside of Jesus. To them, that sounds pretty good. And Matthew says even their mom gets involved in this and asks if her sons can can sit in these positions of prominence. And so evidently the mom and the boys have this conference, private conference with Jesus. And and notice what a bold request it is. Do for us whatever we ask. Lord, whatever we ask, do for us. Folks, isn't it sad that right on the heels of Jesus talking about his suffering and death, All they seem to be interested in is what their place is going to be. 
They want places and positions of prominence. That's what they're interested in. It's sad, isn't it? And so Jesus asked him a question. Can you drink of my cup and be baptized with my baptism? Obviously, those are metaphors for suffering that he's going to face. Jesus is asking them, do, do you really understand what, what it is you're asking? I'm about to drink of a cup that's so bad, the suffering I'm about to endure. Remember the Bible says, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus sweated drops of blood as he thought about what lay before him with the cross, going to the cross. And Jesus is saying, so do you really understand what you're asking? James and John had no clue what they were asking. But Jesus points out that they were indeed going to drink a similar cup and experience a similar baptism. Obviously, now theirs would not be for the redemption of the world, but they were going to suffer. Remember in Acts chapter 12, James was the first apostle put to death by Herod Agrippa. And then John was exiled to the island of Patmos, a victim of the persecution under Domitian. They had no idea what they were asking. But they too were going to suffer as believers. But places of authority, Jesus said, it, it, it's the Father's role to assign those places. Folks, this is one of those places in the Gospels where we see that though Christ is equal with the Father in his incarnation, he was totally submissive and obedient. They were asking for something that Jesus was not going to guarantee. What a great lesson within the lesson this is for us. Jesus is speaking here of his own submissiveness to the Father. To be equal with God and yet not to demand of the Father a role that was his exclusively. Folks, within the Godhead, there is equality of personhood, but differences in functions. The Son glorifies the Father, while the Father glorifies the Son, and the Holy Spirit convicts and draws people to Jesus. Somebody has said, the Father planned redemption, the Son executed redemption, and the Spirit applies redemption. There is perfect unity within the Godhead. We see the grace and the mercy of God in planning our redemption. Again, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Think of the grace of God in this. But then thirdly, I want you to see kingdom values are reversed. Verse 41 says, When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them and said to uh, called called them to him and said to them, You know that the Gentiles, or those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Mark points out that upon hearing about this bold request and, and the exchange that, that Jesus had with James and John, the other disciples are furious. They're probably furious because James and John just simply beat them to the punch. They would have liked to have asked the same thing. 
Jesus calls his disciples together and goes over a lesson that they should have well understood by now. The point is that things in his kingdom and things in the world are different. Folks, we still need to understand this today. God does not look upon things the way man looks upon things. And man doesn't look upon things the way God looks upon things. The world, what the world values is not what God values. What God values, the world does not appreciate. We need to remember in Isaiah 55, we're told that his ways are higher than our ways and and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And that's why in Romans 12 too, we're told that we're not to be conformed to the world. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Because the world is upside down. The world is all messed up. The world thinks it's right side up, but it's upside down. We live in a fallen world. Are you still trying to live by the standards of the world? If you are, I want to say the world is wrong. We live in a world that calls good evil and evil good. And in this fallen world, men love to have authority over other men. We tend to judge importance not by how many men we serve, but by how many serve us. And you know what amazes me? The more technologically advanced we are getting in society, our morals and ethics are not advancing with our technological knowledge. In fact, it seems like just the opposite is happening. As we're growing in scientific knowledge and technological knowledge, it's like we're getting more and more evil and more and more immoral. We are inventing new ways to sin against God. And we're proud of it. And we don't even understand what's happening to us. We continue to buy into the world's ways. Just like I mentioned when we looked at this same theme in Mark chapter 9. A man might ask himself, why do I want to live by God's ways after all? The world's ways seem more appealing to me. The answer answer is very simple. Look again at verse 45. Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Do you want to be like Jesus? Well, Jesus came to serve and give his life as a ransom. The world's way is more attractive to a lost man, but the world's way is not God's way. Folks, disciples are supposed to march to a different drum. The Bible says that God's desire is to conform you and me to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. If we're going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, we've got to learn how to be servants. We will never have a heart like Jesus if we don't understand what's being said in passages like this. God values servanthood and Jesus perfectly embodies it. How should this affect your marriage? Think about it. Passages like this 
on being the last of all and the servant of all. How does a passage like this affect your marriage and your home life? How does it affect the way you treat people tomorrow morning at work or tomorrow morning at school? People in your neighborhood, your neighbors. How is this supposed to affect those relationships? Are you still like James and John? You're biting and clawing your way to the top. You want to be first. You're asking for the best and you're seeking after the best. Or are you willing to put yourself last of all? You know, you can be like James and John with your life if you so desire. Hey, it's a free country, but what you can't do is follow in the footsteps of Jesus and be like James and John. He's calling on you and me to be different, to have a heart like his. Can you imagine how different the world would be if we truly understood what Jesus is saying here? How would our homes and neighborhoods and churches and cities be different? Folks, this is not a pipe dream for those who claim to be following Jesus. It ought to be the way we live. Now let's move on a bit. In Mark 10, 45, we see a new thought introduced here as well. While we can copy Jesus being servants, we cannot do all that he was going to do because he came on a salvation mission to give his life as a ransom for sin. The ultimate reason for his earthly life was to deal with sin. You know, at Christmas we get so caught up in Jesus coming as a little baby. Nothing wrong with that because we celebrate the incarnation that God came near. But he didn't come to stay a baby. He came to grow up, be a man who would go to the cross and he would die for our sin. He came to die. So while we can emulate the servant nature of Jesus, there's one aspect of Jesus' life we can't emulate. Because Jesus was going to be a ransom for your sin and my sin. Now folks, stay with me here for a few minutes as I digress. And I'm not going to stay long on this, okay? But I want to say, <clears throat> to speak of a ransom. This is terminology that we normally don't speak of when we talk about Jesus. Let me explain that. The favorite way that evangelical Christians like to speak of the death of Christ for sin is that we speak of it being a substitution. Jesus died for us. He died in my place and your place. He took the sin that you and I deserve and he bore that. 1 Peter 3.18 says, The just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. And that's the favorite way that evangelicals like to Think about the death of Jesus. And I think that's the most appropriate way to think about it. It's, it's like Isaiah said in speaking of the suffering servant, the Messiah. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
God laid on his son Jesus the iniquity of us all. Well, from Mark 10, 45, though, in addition to the substitutionary atonement theory of Jesus' death, there's also the ransom theory. And again, I have no intention of getting in deep weeds this morning, but I do want you to understand what the church has said about this down through the ages. The theory uh, of a ransom being paid was put forward perhaps first of all by Origen, one of the early church fathers. And it seems to be the major way that the early church looked at what Jesus did on, on the cross. Gregory of Nyssa was a church father who went on to fine-tune the, the ransom theory a little bit. Now there's nothing wrong with the ransom theory if you just simply talk about Jesus offering his life as the payment for sin. Stop right there and with the substitutionary theory of the atonement you've got very biblical teaching. The problem with the ransom theory is men couldn't be satisfied to stop at that. They continued to enlarge upon it. And the conclusion many of the early church leaders came to was that Satan is the one that Jesus made a payment to. Men were held captive by sin and Satan and Jesus offered Satan his life in death as an exchange for Satan letting us go free. Some of the church followers said it was a trick though because Jesus knew Satan couldn't resist such an offer because who Satan really wanted dead was Jesus. So Satan was glad to release us in order to have Jesus die but it was a trick because what Satan didn't seem to realize was that Jesus couldn't stay dead and so Jesus pulled a fast one on Satan. Gregory and Nisa cleaned it up a little bit to take away any deception coming from Jesus. He pointed out that Jesus simply offered Satan his life as a payment for sin without even getting into further discussions about the consequences of Jesus' death. Folks, the problem with the ransom theory is nowhere in Scripture is there even a hint at God paying Satan a ransom. Yes, God demanded a payment for sin. And Jesus offered his life as that payment or ransom. That's biblical. The point is, a payment, a sacrifice had to be made for sin. And Jesus paid it. He paid your debt. And he laid down his life and he died. And he died in your place and he died in my place. The trouble is, James and John and the other disciples, they're still only thinking about themselves. But again, folks, if we're going to be like Jesus, we need to think of others. I want to ask you this morning, when the chips are down, when the chips are really down in your life, who do you think of? Do you think of yourself or do you consider others? Do you put yourself aside in order 
for others to have their needs met. I close with this true story. It's a story showing how Scripture ought to affect us. Some years ago, one of the world's renowned scholars of the classics, E.V. Rue, completed a great translation of Homer into modern English for the Penguin Classic Series. He was 60 years old, and he had been an agnostic all of his life. Well, then the publisher approached him again and asked him to translate the Gospels. When, uh, when Rue's son heard this, he said, It will be interesting to see what Father will make of the four Gospels, but it will be even more interesting to see what the four Gospels make of Father. Well, he didn't have to wonder very long about his father because within one year's time, E.V. Rue, the lifelong agnostic, responded Um, to the Gospels that he was translating and he became a committed Christian and follower of Jesus. The Word of God got a hold of him, drew him to faith in Christ and transformed his life. The question is, will the Word of God get a hold of your life and my life and transform us? And if it does, one thing we will see fruit of in our lives is we will have more of the mind of Christ. Let me give you some takeaways. Number one, Jesus never wavered or lost focus over the fact that he came to offer his life for the forgiveness of sins. He never wavered or lost focus over the fact that he came to offer his life for the forgiveness of sins. And that means that you and I were in sin. Some of you perhaps still are and you need a Savior. That's not me speaking. That's the Bible speaking. Have you come to Christ for the forgiveness of your sin? If not, you need to come today confessing Christ. And you need to follow Him. Give Him your life. The second takeaway, when people strive for prominence and position over others, it creates an unpleasant atmosphere of anger and resentment. Have you created such an atmosphere anywhere in your life? Some of you in here this morning, I dare say, because you've had the attitude of James and John of wanting prominence, you've created hardships over that, resentment and anger in different environments where you run. People resent you. They don't see Jesus in you. And you need to get that right. And a third takeaway, Jesus, who is the perfect Son of God, embodied servanthood. As a follower of Christ, are you embodying servanthood? What needs to change in your life beginning today 
so that your life will embody servanthood? What steps do you need to take? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this passage that just reminds us once again, as we saw in Mark chapter 9, that we do indeed need the mindset of Christ. And the world needs to see the church practicing the mindset of Christ. If we ever hope to make a difference in this world, we need to be more like Jesus. Lord, I pray for that one right now who needs to make some changes in his or her life. They need to be the servant that you've saved them and called them to be. Other believers have have begun to waver in this. Many years ago, perhaps, they became a Christian, but as time has gone by, they've let the world infect them on this more and more and more. And they need to go back when they surrendered their life to you and what they were saying and they need to get back to what it means to be a believer and God I pray for that one this morning who needs to come to Christ because his or her life needs to be transformed it's, it's never been transformed they've never been changed they've never been born from above They've still been thinking about what they can do to save themselves. Lord, show them there's nothing. Jesus came to do what they cannot do. And I pray that they would finally look to Christ and Christ alone to save them. Lord, help our passions and desires to be those which would be pleasing in your sight. For we pray it in Jesus' name.